Please be seated, and if you would, open up your Bibles or read along with the text today, which is Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. We're going to finish up, at least for the time being, our multi-week series on the book of Exodus, and uh, next week and the, and the weeks following, we'll be dealing with different subjects, and some of them will be leading up to the Easter Easter Sunday celebration. After Easter, we're going to be turning our attention to the book of 2 Timothy, for those of you who like to read ahead. 1 Timothy chapter 15, we find that the Israelites have crossed through the Red Sea. God has done a great victory through the, uh, the Red Sea crossing, and now the Israelites are cheering and praising God and dancing, and they've now gone out into the wilderness and their dancing and cheering has changed to grumbling. That's where we find them now. Again, Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was called Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, And give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam where where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. Father, we pray that you would take your word and that you would work on our hearts and in our lives, in a powerful, transforming way, in your grace, by the goodness of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sarah Walton, author of the book Hope When It Hurts, writes in her blog uh, the following account of some of the difficulties her family went through. We were extremely hopeful that the Lord would soon provide a way to meet the many needs overwhelming our family right now. Doors opened and it seemed as though God was paving the way to an answered prayer. Yet within a moment, that assumed provision was gone and confusion and fear were left in its place. I admit, I wrestled with conflicting thoughts and emotions. From within the torrent of emotions came questions, questions I had to hash out with the Lord. God, I'm confident that you are good, but I can't understand why you continue to withhold provisions for our family. I believe that you're in control, but why then would you close yet another door that seemed certain to bring relief that we need? We're praying for your direction, but why do you seem to continue to lead us down a dead end? Why did you bring us this far with all, the, with all the effort and emotion that's been invested just to leave us right back where we started? Unmet needs 
and expectations dashed. That's where she found herself, and perhaps that's where you find yourself. Maybe in the past you found yourself. That's certainly where the Israelites found themselves. Unmet needs, dashed expectations. We read this here in this test by the bitter water in the wilderness. Verse 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was called Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? They had no ability, they had no water to drink in this difficult situation. And we read in verse 25 that this was a test. The Lord tested them. Now, what is a test? Now, students, some of you have undergone testing. Is this the way the Lord does his tests? Well, in some ways, yes, but in many ways, no. I remember when I was in college hearing of these dreaded pre-med uh, classes that students would go into, these would be weeding out classes. I remember one teacher saying to students in his class on the first day of class, I want you to look to the student on your right and look to the student on your left because at the end of this class, one of you will be gone. Okay? The weeding out classes. Is that what God's doing? He's testing to find out who the, who the real believers are? No. No, that's not the, the way in which God is testing. That's not what testing means. See, God is testing and trying our faith. He is building our faith. He was building the faith of the Israelites. You remember last week, in the last two weeks really, we talked about the fact that Israel, instead of God leading them down that direct route, the, the way of the Philistines that would gotten them to the land of Canaan very, very quickly. God said, I'm not going to lead them down that way because they're unprepared. At the first sign of, of trouble and difficulty, uh, they're going to shout, run away, run away, uh, because they are not prepared for battle. So what did God do? He led them back to the Red Sea and he put them right up against the Red Sea and the Egyptians came and they had no way of escape. And the Israelites were saying, what are you doing, God? This is not such a good plan. And God said, keep your mouth shut and just watch. And so he opened up the Red Sea and they marched through on dry land. And the Egyptians followed them and the Red Sea covered them up. And God said, see, I took care of your enemy. I am the warrior. We find here not but a few days later, the Israelites are out in the desert. And they're grumbling and saying, God... We have these needs that you're not taking care of. God says, guess what? I'm going to teach you to trust me. I'm going to test you. And they tested with no water. Now, I should say this. Don't go to, say, the Sahara Desert and, and say, I'm going to walk out with a few days water, and I'm just going to keep on walking out there, and God is going to provide water for me. Um, don't do that, please. Uh, the Israelites were carried there by the Lord. The Lord led them there. The Lord commanded them to go in this place. And, and sometimes we find ourselves in a condition of need that we did not ask for, that we did not 
that we did not move into in some kind of illegitimate way. My daughter and son-in-law came to help us out right after the hurricane, and uh, they're 20-somethings, and they recently purchased a home. They live in Chattanooga. Uh, They're uh, living basically paycheck to paycheck. My daughter is uh, working as a preschool teacher in graduate school, and my son-in-law is in a startup uh, business, managing this business. And as they came to town and they saw all the destruction, one of the first questions my daughter asked was, what do people do, what are they doing who are living paycheck to paycheck? She understood the predicament. I said, it's not good. It's not good. Some of their businesses are gone that they work for. Uh, They don't have that paycheck next week. This is very difficult. And this is something that people didn't ask to be brought into. We find ourselves in a position of having our faith tested, not in an illegitimate way, not because we're presuming on God, but because God has led us there. And in fact, we see that the test is actually worse than them not having water, right? They don't have water, and they think they have water. They come up to this watering hole, and I'm sure they were all very excited about it. We've got water, and they realize there's no water here to drink. That's even worse than having it for the first time. You have these expectations built up. You go to the doctor, you get a good report, and then later you find out that the report's not so good, right? So people try to moderate expectations. People have asked me since the the hurricane, Uh, how long is it going to take for our sanctuary to be rebuilt? And you know what I say? About a year. You know what I said in January? About a year. You know what I say today? About a year, right? I don't know. I don't want you to come back and say, but Ron, you told us. I, I don't know. I don't want to build up expectations. So they had these expectations. And these expectations were dashed. And that's exactly what God was doing because God was building their faith. He was testing them. We find that time and time again in Scripture that when the Bible speaks of testing, it's for the purpose of refining and building our faith. James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing he goes on to give a practical example if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him but let him ask in faith that faith that he has just built up through testing without doubting for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God is building stability of faith so that you will have stability of faith when you come to him in prayer and rely on him. Well, he knows each broken promise leads to fuller, excuse me, well, he knows each broken purpose leads to fuller, deeper trust. And the end of all his dealings proves our God is wise and just. That's Edith Lillian Young. Broken purposes ultimately will lead 
to fuller trust in God. Malcolm Muggeridge said this, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experience that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, everything I have learned, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. If it ever were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence, then the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal and trivial to be endurable. And then another positive spin put on it by none other than Mario Andretti, the famous race car driver who said, if everything seems under control, you're just not going fast enough. <laughs> well, most of us feel like we're, we're going fast enough, right? And so by saying these things about God teaching us through testing and trials doesn't mean that it's easy, it's difficult, it's hard, it's painful. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, points this out. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And we're to understand that what God is doing in our lives through trials and difficulties is a fatherly discipline for our own good. Hebrews 12, 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons... For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And so because of the fact that we know that God is a loving father who cares for us, we're to be encouraged. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Because we know that we've got a God that cares for us, even through the discipline. My granddaughter's three years old, and her mother... This week, in dealing with uh, sometimes difficulties from her three-year-old, said, you've got two options, one of two options, take them. And in response, she said, I don't like my choices. And she said, okay, I've made my decision. I'll take time out. Well, that's an interesting way of handling the situation, isn't it? I mean, as parents, you get into these very difficult conundrums in Disciplining your children. And why do you do that? Children, why do your parents discipline you? They're just mean. They're just, they're just slap mean. They're just mean as can be, right? Well, they care about you. They want you to grow and to mature and to be successful in life. I've had this conversation with my son, Chris, as he was dealing with the frustrations in his uh, parenting. I said, you know, the goal is that your children would be independent of you and dependent on the Lord. To which he said, well, my daughter's plenty independent from me. And I said, no, she's not. She's not independent of you. She's not ready. Uh, independent of your parents and dependent on the Lord. That's what they're trying to do. They care about you. They want you to be prepared and ready. And the Lord is doing the same thing with us. The Lord tests us. The Lord cares for us. The Lord disciplines us. And parents are finite. We can only approximate what the best solution is with that moving target called our kids. You know, how do you do that discipline properly? But God knows completely how to discipline. And part of what he does is he turns 
the bitter to sweet eventually. And part of the discipline is teaching that he will actually meet his need, our need, in time. Right? He does it in time. Verses 24 and 25. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log and threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. By the way, some of your translations will say log or tree or branch. It means either a tree or any part of a tree. And this was a miraculous event. You don't get bad water turned to good by throwing a tree into the water. God miraculously provides sweet water. And he built the faith of the Israelites. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but what happens immediately after this event? The the next thing they do is they travel to an oasis, right? Verse 27, then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. It's sort of like this. Family, you're on a family vacation. Some of you come back from spring break. You're on a family trip in the car and, you know, one of the children says, I've got to go to the bathroom. And you go, Dad says, we're, we're almost there to the hotel. I mean, literally, we turn a corner and we're right there less than five minutes away. I've got to go to the bathroom right now. All right, so you pull off to the side of the road at that gas station that looks like it hasn't been used for 20 years. You know the one I'm talking about? And then you go into the bathroom, and it looks like it's been used for the last 20 years and not been cleaned. And so mom comes in with her Lysol wipes, takes about 10 minutes to make sure there are no communicable diseases, and um, child goes to the bathroom, gets in the car, and you go around the corner, and you're staying in a five-star hotel. So the Israelites had, right? They were at that dirty gas station, right? Wasn't very good. God says, trust me. They cry out. God says, okay, we'll clean it up for you. They take off and they go to that five-star luxury oasis. God is saying, I am going to provide for you. But sometimes you have to wait. Well, God is our healer. That is the word in our text today. He will heal you. Exodus chapter 15, about halfway through verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Last week we found out that God was our warrior and that God was our king. Today we find out that God is our healer. Now, these comments are are very curious. They're very interesting. Why he would put, God would put these right here at this time in the life of Israel. Um, And and there are several things about it that we can can say. For instance, this is kind of a a forward view of what God is going to tell the Israelites as they're about to enter the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, verse 27, verse 60, it lays out the covenant curses. We've talked about God makes covenant promises to his people. And part of that to the Israelites were if you obey, there will be covenant blessings and there will be covenant curses. 
The Lord will strike you with boils, the boils of Egypt, and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Right? God is saying, these are part of the covenant curses, those things that I protected you from in Egypt, uh, you will encounter uh, if you do not keep the covenant. On another level, it anticipates Mount Sinai because it talks about the laws. It says, if you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes. That's interesting. Up to this point, really the only two things that God has told the Israelites to do, he's given them the uh, institution of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread and circumcision. And that's it. So that's why I say this language is curious, and also the language of God being a healer. So why is he talking about being a healer here? It wasn't as if God built their, uh, their faith through trials of some kind of illness, and God said, see, I healed you, and so have faith in me. I am your healer. Now what we have here is, is the healing of the water. The water is healed, and God takes care of his people through the healing of the water. We have a, the closest passage to this is actually a passage in 2 Kings, and the prophet Elisha, instead of Moses, is the person involved in 2 Kings 2.19. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word Elisha spoke. God was the healer of their water. Now, up until the time of the prophets, is if you look at the, the word heal in the Old Testament, usually it's just literally healing a disease. But when we get to the prophets, it's used in a broader, more figurative, in, this, in a sense, a deeper way of healing that the Lord will do. For instance, many of you know this verse, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, speaking of Jesus Christ. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are, we are healed. We're healed through the wounds of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the great physician who has healed us at the deepest level, our deepest need, the forgiveness of sins. He took the punishment. He bore he bore the sickness. He bore the wounds that you deserved and I deserved. And by his wounds, we are healed. We find here in the Bible that healing is both personal and the earth is going to be healed. Now, I'm going to use this terminology. I'm really not trying to be political, okay? Don't get mad at me one way or the other. Uh, but we've heard lots of reference to the, the, the Green New Deal, right, recently? Well, there will be a Green New Covenant, right? The New Covenant that comes, part of the, the purpose of that New Covenant is to do this 
greening of the entire planet in a way uh, that has not been the case since the Garden of Eden. You remember back in the Garden of Eden? Paradise. And what do we find in the Garden of Eden? Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. What we find throughout all of Scripture is this idea of water and rivers bringing life. And this passage in Exodus chapter 15 is part of that stream, uh, no pun intended, part of that stream of thought in the Bible related to the healing that God is going to do through water. Psalm 46.4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And we find in Ezekiel chapter 47 this prophecy of water flowing from the temple, the very presence of God. It's figurative. So water is so... So here, here what uh, the prophecy was, what Isaiah, ex- excuse me, Ezekiel is experiencing. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. This is Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1. And behold, the water was issuing from, behold, the threshold of the temple toward the east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south to the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side and going eastward with a measuring line in his hand. The man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. And again, he measured a thousand and led me through water that was knee deep. And he measured a thousand and led me through water and it was waist deep. And again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, you have seen this. Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, and enters the sea, and when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Okay, are you, are you tracking with Ezekiel here, what he's seeing? He's seeing water flowing from the temple. This is from the very presence of God in the temple. And at first it's a trickle, and then it's ankle deep, and then it's knee deep, and then it's waist deep, and then it's so deep, it's a river. And the river flows into the sea, the Dead Sea the sea of salt, and makes it fresh. And this is the response. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for the wa- this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And then he continues, and on the banks, on both sides of the river, There will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fall, fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Their leaves for healing. The water flowing from the presence of God is for healing. You go all the way to the end of the Bible. 
It was read this morning, the book of Revelation, the last chapter, chapter 22, the culmination of things. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And then the angel, verse 22, verse 1, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. When I think of that, I'm reminded of rivers in Florida, the spring-fed rivers. Uh, Used to take students to the Itchituckney River when I was a campus minister at Florida State. They'd come from outside of the state. I'd say, you've never seen a river like this. The water is so clear. It's clearer than a swimming pool. And one time we took students there and we got our tubes and we were going down this long walkway and one of the students looked out to the water and said, you're pulling my leg. That water's dark. And I said, that water's not dark. You're seeing to the bottom of the river. You're seeing the, the, the weeds, the, the, river, the river grass on the bottom of the river all the way to the bottom. It is crystal clear. And so there's this crystal clear water that was flowing and it was flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Here we have Jesus Christ represented, the Lamb of God. And it was flowing through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, right? It's not just one time a year. It's every single month the river, the uh, fruit is yielding, the tree is yielding fruit. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The healing of the nations. The Bible says that there will be representatives, there will be people from every tongue, tribe, nation across the planet that will be worshiping forever and ever uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Isaiah chapter 19 prophesies something remarkable. You know those Egyptians... What about the Egyptians? Will they have any representatives there? And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Amy Grant saying, Tell me, why then is the hand slow and the dog bites? Well, I don't know, but the sky will fall and heads will roll. And it's all that I can do. To wait for the healing. It is the healing. It is the healing when all things will be made right. When the nations will be healed, when the planets will be healed, well, you and I will be healed. For the Lamb, Revelation chapter 7, 17, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of living water. And he will wipe away every ear, excuse me, every tear from their eyes. It's not just a green new covenant for the earth, for the planet. It's for you. It's for you. God is your healer. And the deepest healing that we need comes through repentance and faith. That Jesus Christ was wounded for our transgressions. Come let us return to the Lord, Hosea said. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, said the Lord. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. How is it that we are healed? We are healed through water, through the living water. Jesus spoke to the woman at the well who was looking for water. 
And he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given to you living water. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus said at another point, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me. Do you believe in him? It doesn't take much faith, just a little bit of faith. And God is refining that faith. It's a faith, not in your faith, but a faith in the person of Jesus Christ that he accomplished in his perfect life and his death on the cross. Your great physician, the healing that you might be forgiven, that you might be restored before God forever. And one day we know that we will go home to be with the Lord. And one day we know Jesus will return and there will be a resurrection, the Bible says, of our bodies, those that have passed away and gone on to be with the Lord, and we will be completely healed. And we look at figures in the Bible like Lazarus, who to say that he was healed is an understatement. He was dead, and he was healed and brought back to life. Many, many people were healed in the Bible. All of them have passed away. Lazarus has passed away. Lazarus, right now in heaven, is far better than he was when Jesus Christ raised him physically from the dead the first time. He is experiencing fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and other believers. And someday he will receive a resurrected body as well. And so we pray for people, do pray for people, pray for their healing. And God oftentimes answers our prayer requests. Uh, But when... The answer to prayer is that healing that happens by God bringing people home. We understand that there is a deeper healing that has taken place, something that we cannot see. And so we get back to the point of testing. What's the point of testing? It's to strengthen that faith that you have, that reliance on God. First of all, in God is the one who loves you and cares for you and has given you a Savior to save you from your sins and to bring you into that perfect relationship. In 1 Peter, we read chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then we find out what it is that is the most precious, valuable commodity that we own, that we possess, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the testing, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. We have a faith that's being tested like precious metal. The metal is heated and the impurities rise to the surface and they're skimmed off the top and time and time and time again the testing happens 
and the, the metal becomes more and more precious, and our faith, as we are tested, becomes stronger, and we become more reliant. But it's not just in the future. God says that now he's working on your life, even now, to turn the bitter into the sweet. First Peter goes on to say, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not, do not see him, yet you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We are receiving the outcome of our faith. Even now, we're tasting it. And so the bitter is made sweet. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We have to wait. Wait for it. The Lord will turn the bitter into the sweet. Just this week we had um, the drywaller, the guy doing the roof in our house, uh, come through to do the repair work. And he walked out the backyard and we walked past my little garden. I think some of you might remember that this past summer I talked about what a lousy gardener I am and how we put these tomatoes in. And I think we got one or two measly little not very good tomatoes. I don't know if you remember that, but it was an illustration for something. Um, we had the hurricane, right? So we had the, you know, 145 mile an hour winds blow through my backyard. We had, uh, we had frost. We had me doing nothing to my garden. The tomatoes survived. The, the, the guy looks down and he looks at my tomatoes and he goes, you got all kinds of tomatoes on that plant. Amazing. What did I do? Nothing. What did I do last summer? Everything. I watered it, I fertilized it, I trimmed it, I took care of it, nothing happened. All I had to do is wait. Just a little hurricane, didn't undo it. Frost didn't undo it. That's how it is with us. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He will take the bitter and make it sweet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word. We thank you for those that have gone before us, uh, that have served as examples to us, uh, to show us that you indeed are <clears throat> our healer. And we pray, Father, that, that as we wait, that you might uh, perfect our faith, that we might grow to love you more and trust you more. And that, uh, that even in difficult times, in bitter times, we might know uh, the sweetness of life that comes from Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's continue to sing to our God. Uh, we'll sing to him, O God, beyond all praising. Let's stand and sing together.